Hello, and welcome to this episode of Policy Talks, an iAffairs podcast on policy analysis and international affairs. I'm Michael Aronoff, an associate editor at iAffairs, and today is February 28, 2022. In this episode, I sit down with Jonathan Berkshire Miller to discuss the Indo-Pacific, the impact of the Ukraine crisis on the region, and where Canada fits into this picture. Jonathan is an expert on the Indo-Pacific, who has held a variety of positions in both private and public sectors. He is currently a senior fellow at the Japan Institute on International Affairs, the director and senior fellow of the Indo-Pacific program at the Donald Laurier Institute, and is the founding director of the Council on International Policy. Jonathan, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks so much, Michael. It's a real pleasure to be on, and uh, thanks for doing this. Now, maybe before we uh, dive too deep into the Indo-Pacific, you could tell us a little bit about what sort of led you to gravitate towards international affairs and, and why the Indo-Pacific in particular? That's a great question uh, to start off with, uh, Michael. And, uh, you know, I would say even in high school and, uh, you know, going into my, uh, my first degree, my undergraduate, um, I was always a, a fan of history uh, and international relations and the sort of convergence of the two. Um, and uh, growing up, uh, reading about World War II and some of the challenges in the Cold War, and just seeing this region of all the dynamic uh, powers that are in this region, I think really drew me to the, re- to the region in the early, early stage. Um, and then sort of fast forwarding a little bit to, uh, to my career after academia, uh, spending most of my time uh, in, in the federal government in Canada, working with a few different agencies, uh, and that was predominantly on, on Asia. So at that point, you could see the dynamism of the region, obviously economically growing at such a fast pace, but also uh, laden with uh, a range of different security disputes that have been there, again, uh, for uh, several decades, uh, going back to the history point at the beginning. So I think this is what originally attracted me uh, to the region. Um, Since that point, obviously, uh, working in a range of think tanks uh, in Japan, the United States and Canada, um, and uh, continue to enjoy uh, work on the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack in uh, in what you just uh, put out there. But maybe for uh, the sake of any listeners who are a little less familiar with the region, uh, maybe we could start by looking into you know, what is the Indo-Pacific? What do we mean when we use this term? And perhaps where are the borders and, and where does it even come from? That's a really good question, because I think if you would look at speeches, uh, you know, it's definitely in the case of, uh, of Canadian officials, but I think this would be true of officials in the United States or in Europe as well, uh, say five to 10 years ago, uh, you probably would find very little, if, if zero, a reference to the Indo-Pacific terming. Uh, one example I often make is Hillary Clinton, who is often seen as, as one of the principles of the American pivot. Uh, to the Asia-Pacific, uh, along with Kirk Campbell, who's, who's now the senior coordinator in the White House for the Indo-Pacific. When Clinton uh, made a speech, when she was Secretary of State under the Obama administration, there was no reference to the Indo-Pacific. Um, and then you fast forward to the Trump administration uh, and uh, speeches are littered with this terminology. But I think it's important to take a pause and, and go back a little bit because I think there's this perception often um, now that the Indo-Pacific terminology is, is American driven, American origin. Uh, but the reality is that if you look back in history, uh, there's a bit of a different story. Uh, first of all, before the sort of the modern era, uh, the term Indo-Pacific was coined um, in the early in 1920s 
uh, by a, a German uh, military official who actually used this and not in a geopolitical or geostrategic terminology, but used this more in a, in a, in a geographical uh, concept to look at the convergence of the Indian and the Pacific Oceans. So that was the sort of the early origins of this terminology. The geopolitical sort of sense of using this in more of a strategic uh, terminology um, really originated from the Japanese. Um, there were also, of course, Australian thinkers uh, looking at this and Indian thinkers. Um, but I guess the, the precise point is that this was not really a term that was born in the United States. Um, the first sort of iteration of this was uh, former Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo uh, in his first tenure in office in 2006, 2007. And basically, he went to the Indian Parliament at that time and talked about a confluence of two seas. Uh, one being the Indian Ocean and one being the Pacific Ocean. And the idea that the values and interests uh, at stake converge between those two oceans and the idea of seeing South Asia and its connection to East Africa and the Middle East uh, and East Asia on the other side um, and the Pacific as separate, uh, didn't, uh, it didn't and does not make sense in geopolitical terms. So that is a little sort of a history of, of the origin. And where we're at now, obviously, it's framed a lot in some of the tensions, uh, largely is seen as, uh, as challenges with China. But I should note that it's not defined only by, um, by some of the challenges posed by China. Obviously, we have challenges, uh, nuclear and non-proliferation challenges from North Korea, amongst others. So this is, that's a little bit of the, uh, the background on the Indo-Pacific. I think you make a, a really interesting point that this isn't uh, an American idea, at least in its origin. Um, do you think it's significant that this doesn't come from the United States and it's coming from countries like Japan or Australia in the region? I think it is. I think sometimes, you know, the simple sort of answer of, of why there's tensions in this region is that there's, you know, two great superpowers who are, who are facing off and everyone else is sort of caught in the middle and getting trampled on. I think that's a very simplistic way to look at it. Um, clearly, the United States and China have their issues and have their, their uh, spots of tension. But the reality is, if you look from uh, around the ring of China, whether it's uh, whether it's Japan, of course, Taiwan uh, in, in Southeast Asia as well with Vietnam, uh, India, obviously having two land border disputes with China, there are tensions sort of all around. Uh, so the idea that it's only the United States that is concerned about this relationship uh, and has, has sort of been foisting upon uh, its allies and partners in the region, its own view of the region, I think is a little bit simplistic. I think a lot of the players in the Indo-Pacific also have their concerns, also want a, a rules-based order to be upheld. Um, and, and I think that needs to be taken into account. I think that's a great point. I think we often uh, forget about a lot of these other countries that do have these interests and other disputes that are outside the realm of uh, the United States and particularly the American competition uh, with China that we're seeing today. Um, but maybe I can, I can zoom out a little just in uh, recognition of what's going on in, uh, in Ukraine right now and ask you, um, you know, as we look at this and the increasingly close relationship that China and Russia have been cultivating over the last few years, do you see any implications for the Ukraine crisis to spill over into or impact uh, into Pacific, either for these smaller nations and their concerns or for the United States uh, itself in regards to its rivalry with China? I think absolutely. And I think, you know, the idea that the Indo-Pacific and uh, transatlantic security are mutually exclusive or they're two different theaters, 
Um, I think, you know, fundamentally has uh, some incorrect elements to it. Uh, one, just one example, when tensions were ramping up over the past two weeks, um, and obviously we saw uh, Russian uh, military mobilizations near the borders of Ukraine, now we've seen a, a full-scale invasion. At the same time, uh, Russia conducted its largest uh, in, in several years uh, naval operations in the Pacific. Uh, months before and year in, in the past five years, we've seen several uh, naval exercises between Russia and China, and China in the Pacific. So I think there's a, there is an absolute connection uh, between some of the things that are happening in the transatlantic sphere and those that are happening in the Pacific sphere. The other element to think about um, is the significance of how several states in the Indo-Pacific have responded to the tensions in Ukraine. So if you were to go back again 10 years ago uh, and you had a similar crisis, I think the general reaction from a lot of the states in the Indo-Pacific, while they'd be very concerned, obviously, by the, by the actions here, is to sort of sit this one out, uh, to find a way to uh, have a quieter uh, approach to this, not necessarily feel that they have to link in with the West on this. But for, for example, for Japan as a G7 country to, to join uh, the other European friends and Canada and the United States on SWIFT sanctions, South Korea and Singapore also to take strong positions on this. I think it's highly significant. And why is that the case? I think that they recognize that the idea that a state, uh, whether it's Russia, whether it's another uh, power, can unilaterally try to take territory and change the status quo is fundamentally not a European issue. Uh, it's not a Ukraine issue, but it's an international uh, rules-based order issue. And that's one, again, not to make easy comparisons uh, to Ukraine and, and, and other hotspots in Asia. I think some people are a little bit too, too quick to uh, make comparisons, for example, to Taiwan. But I think it is crucial that uh, for Western allies in the Indo-Pacific to understand that someone is going to stand up uh, for the rules-based order and that just to say nothing, to do nothing, uh, has profound implications for their own region. Now, you mentioned some of these uh, or plethora of Indo-Pacific countries that have taken stronger stances. And, uh, you know, when I, I look at Europe, I see that Europe has really banded together uh, during this crisis a lot faster and much more seriously than Putin, perhaps many others, myself included, were expecting. As you see some of these Indo-Pacific countries taking these stronger stances, do you think we're likely to see that kind of uh, hardening or deepening of the American alliance system within the Indo-Pacific as, as a result of Ukraine? And, and can these Asian countries continue to sort of sit it out uh, in the future going forward? So has this sort of fundamentally changed the game? Well, I think that we're already starting to see a bit of this. And I mean, I think this is one of the greatest uh, hopes, I think, of the United States strategy for, for, uh, for several decades, but especially in the last uh, 10 to 15 years. Um, you know, under the Obama administration, they talked about sort of um, networking security. So making sure, getting away from the hub and spoke system, the bilateral alliances, which was effectively the United States and South Korea, the United States and Australia, the United States and Japan, United States and Philippines, et cetera. Um, and finding a way for those allies to work together. Um, you know, whether the United States was a hub um, and they had um, the spoke sort of connected, that, that was the, the goal. The challenge was, I think, that the independent alliances have their own sort of security perceptions, have their own worldviews, have their own strategies. So how to sort of find a common purpose. Um, you could argue that some of the tensions that are happening now in the region, many of them um, uh, coming from China, uh, have created this sense of, of somewhat of a common uh, vision and somewhat of a common uh, sense of threats. 
but there are frankly still a lot of divisions. I mean, you, you need look no uh, further than the Japan-Korea relationship, for example, a trilateral that would make a lot of sense uh, that the Americans have poured a lot of capital and time into making sure that those three sides work together as a sort of a quasi alliance, but it just hasn't worked out for several reasons. Uh, historical and also, frankly, uh, their own visions and, and security concerns. I think the North, um, South Korea is fundamentally focused on uh, the Korean Peninsula, whereas Japan is, is largely focused on uh, the rise of China and the challenges that come there. So I think it's, it's, it's an ambition. Um, some of the challenges that are happening, um, whether they're in Europe, might now sort of push this a little bit more because I think states in the Indo-Pacific are realizing that they sort of have to work out some of their squabbles. Um, but um, but it's still a, an everyday reality in this uh, part of the world. So then I guess, where do you see China fitting into this? I mean, is this at the end of the day going to be a, a good or a bad thing for China? You know, I can imagine some individuals in China arguing that, you know, this is great. We've been public enemy number one for the United States over the last few years. And now they've got another problem that's going to distract them and that maybe they'll ease uh, the pressure on China. Or does this make China look really bad coming so shortly after their February 4th joint statement between Xi and Putin, where they said they have a, a no limits relationship. And given the way that things are progressing with Putin placing his nuclear forces on higher alert and reportedly now using uh, cluster munitions in residential areas, is this leaving China feeling uh, you know, more uncomfortable in the Indo-Pacific region? Where does it fall within these emerging uh, alliance structures now? Yeah, I think China initially, um, and we're still in the early days of, of how this, um, this scenario is playing out in Ukraine, I think it, China initially is in a very precarious position, as you said, uh, you know, not just the, the most recent summit, um, but the timing of, of course, of that summit and that sort of very uh, long communique that was, was written by the two sides of the No Limits Partnership, uh, obviously uh, has not come at an opportune time for China. Um, and some of their actions since have, have not been the, the, the finest uh, and not seen, been seen the finest in the international community. Uh, that being said, I think this is really a pivotal moment for the Chinese. Um, they may see this, as you mentioned, as a, as a time for distraction, and maybe this is a time for diplomacy in their own relationship with the West. Maybe they find uh, for once uh, in probably a period of the, at least the last five years, that they're not public enemy number one. Uh, Russia has taken that pole position uh, and sort of uh, alleviated a little bit of the burden for, uh, for some period. Although I would say structurally, uh, especially as uh, this is uh, happening in Washington DC, I don't think anyone's uh, forgotten or has illusions about um, the future of the relationship with China. That being said, I think it, it allows them to breathe some air. Whether they take that opportunity uh, is another uh, dimension. So depending on how deep this conflict gets, um, if additional sanctions are, are put in place, uh, and it's not just sanctions, but it's how they're implemented, and what will China's role be on this? Uh, they may not put sanctions themselves, but will they actively look to work around those sanctions, circumvent them, uh, and that will, that will put them uh, more and more uh, in the bad books uh, with Europe and the United States? So I think there's, there's tough questions for China. It's not, uh, it's not an easy scenario, um, but I think that the way that this plays out in the next few months uh, will be very telling. Now, you mentioned the sort of breathing space that, that China has and maybe an opportunity to try and uh, improve some of its relations with the West. Do you see this as almost like a, a bit of a, a Nixon-like 
opportunity where the West has this chance to try and peel China away from Russia through its economic relationships uh, with China, whether that's through carrots or, or sticks, for example, threatening to uh, sanction China if it's perceived to be softening the sanctions on Russia or helping Russia access foreign currency. Is this something that the West could feasibly pursue or, or is the China sentiment in countries like the United States too uh, strong right now to pursue that kind of diplomacy? Well, it's a really interesting question. I mean, again, I think if you were to say probably, you know, definitely three years ago, but probably even a few months ago, um, you know, the, the, the sentiment would be maybe do we try to peel um, Russia away from China? So the opposite version. And I think when you're thinking of this partnership and as much as, you know, Putin may try to frame himself as an equal partner or a senior partner, uh, clearly Russia is the junior partner in this relationship with China. Um, so the idea that now we're looking at peeling the Chinese off, I think is very interesting. I, I still think fundamentally, uh, whether it's not just the United States, but um, the West more broadly, the fundamental challenge, and this is not just purely in a threat perspective, but I think managing the rise of China and some of the uh, the positive or the, the negative offshoots of that, I think remains a fundamental challenge. So I don't know that it's about peeling China away um, uh, to make sure that uh, it can contain Russia, but more about the idea of potentially showing this as a teachable moment for China. And the idea this is not a path, uh, this is a path that if you go down, there will be severe consequences. Uh, so this is something that I think the Chinese side is watching very closely. And again, I cannot speak for them, but I think that they are seeing this um, and to be honest, maybe a little bit surprised by the resolve of the West and the spine, the steel in the spine of the West uh, in its response to this. I think, was there an expectation that uh, the West would go this far? Um, you know, whether it's Germany talking about bringing its defense spending up to 2%, uh, whether it's the SWIFT sanctions, et cetera. I think that might have surprised uh, Beijing uh, and, and perhaps that uh, leads to a bit of restraint in their, uh, in their actions in the region. Definitely. I'm, uh, I recall numerous uh, articles pointing out that since the financial crisis, China has seemed to have this notion that the West is in a, a bit of an inevitable decline. So maybe this is giving them a little pause to suggest maybe that decline is not, not so real or not happening as quickly as they might have thought, even if they're growing in relative power to the United States uh, at this time. But I'd like to dig in a little further on one of the points you brought up, which was sort of getting at this nature of the China challenge. Now, when we look at this from uh, the West or, or from Canada, how should we really understand uh, the nature of the challenge that China presents? Is it fundamentally an economic, uh, an ideological? Is, is it a security challenge? And how concerned or serious, uh, rather, is this challenge for uh, you know Canadians? Yeah, well, I think you're you're right to frame it that way. It's it's very dynamic. Um, the idea of thinking in one domain, I, I don't think necessarily makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, the idea that China is an emerging economy, um, you know, not just an emerging economy, it's it's the second, uh, the world's second largest economy and very soon will be the largest economy. Um, but it's the way that it's sort of, it's a viewpoint and it's sort of blueprint for the future. Um, security issues obviously are, are in tandem. There's a, there's a defined nexus between security and economics in the way that China is viewing the world. Um, the important thing to put into perspective here is it's not, you know, not everything needs to be framing China as a threat. China is a reality. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, one of the largest countries 
in Asia. Uh, it uh, it continues to trade with with most of the countries and its neighbors at a high rate. I mean, if you, even if you think of some of the tensions between China and Japan, uh, they remain uh, top trading partners. Uh, the same would be true with South Korea, India, etc. So the reality is China is going to be there. But how do we nudge China along uh, and make sure that certain rules and certain values and certain interests are upheld? So I think that is the fundamental question here. So when we're talking with the Indo-Pacific, and some say, is this anti-China? Is China excluded? Um, I think you'll see a lot of the states, and even the United States will mention this too, is you know China is part of this region. It's not that we're going to draw a map and say China's not a part. Uh, China's clearly a part of the Indo-Pacific. Um, but what we need to govern this region by is, is a it's a set of laws and norms. If we don't have uh, rules of the road, um, uh, then then what do we have? Um, so I think that's that's the fundamental idea of, of, of thinking about this. Rather than saying China threat, I think China challenge makes it, is, a, is a better sort of framing because you know when you have a challenge, there can be opportunities too. Um, and and I'm not saying we should uh, dismiss the opportunities in, in dealing with China. I think there's there there are some opportunities that we we should seize, um, but we have to do that with our eyes wide open and make sure that we, we don't sort of downplay risks and threats uh, in the process of doing that. Uh, I definitely take your point there. And there's definitely some issues that come to mind like climate change where we inevitably must work with, with China. But you, know, you mentioned this idea of nudging China, which sort of makes me recall some of the, the optimism from the 90s and the early 2000s when China was being uh, you know, accepted into the WTO and was joining a, a variety of international forums. And there really seemed a lot of optimism that China was going to really enter into this, you know, our liberal rules-based international order and, and become a constructive player. Uh, but since Xi Jinping took power, it seems like China's really been backpedaling on a lot of these uh, initiatives that had been started uh, at that point. Do you think we're at a point where we can really still effectively nudge China in directions that will make it a more uh, appropriate behavior uh, or actor in the region? Yeah, I think you're right. So I think basically, I mean, the, the challenge uh, with, uh, with China has been the rather than being, um, you know, complete outsider in the international system and one that is a global pariah, you know, uh, an example would be the, the regime in North Korea. Um, China it sees itself as, as a key player in the international system. Actually, I mean, if you see many of the UN related bodies, uh, China has more heads uh, of these, these bodies than, uh, than most of the, the countries in the West, even if you combine some of them. Um, so China wants to be a part of this system. They want to be a part of the international system. The challenge is that China effectively uses this system in an a la carte manner. So uh, when the international system benefits China, um, they're happy to play part. Uh, but when it uh, goes against China, and, and an example of this would be the, uh, the Permanent Court of Arbitration's ruling uh, in the South China Sea, all of a sudden uh, they say this is a, you know, the ruling is a waste of paper. Um, so this is fundamentally um, where, we need to, where we need to be with China is that uh, sometimes it's not even nudging. Sometimes it's having firm uh, rules and norms set um, that need to be followed. And if they're not followed, I don't think that there can be any other option. There's going to be other areas where I do think that there needs to be a bit more um, sort of nuanced diplomacy. And I think climate issues is going to be one of those, as you identified. Um, but fundamentally, I don't think that we can compromise on, on many of our ambitions and many of our rules in this region. And one example I would give on this would be the uh, on the trading uh, regime. 
uh, with regard to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, China now has applied uh, at, the same, at the same time, basically, as Taiwan applied. Uh, China, frankly, is not um, up to the standards uh, of the Trans-Pacific Partnership as it currently exists. I don't think that while we do need to obviously in every trade agreement make accommodations uh, for states that we want to potentially add in, um, we do not need to water down uh, these agreements uh, just to get the Chinese on board. In addition to that, uh, if they continue to take course of practices uh, in trade terms, you know, with several states who are in this agreement already, uh, including Australia and Canada, um, that also doesn't make sense. So I think it's, it's got to be a bit of a balance, but we do need a, a firm set of, of rules and guidelines uh, that manage the relationship. So maybe a, another way of trying to frame China would be uh, to ask, you know, is China, would you consider China a revisionist power? Is China using its influence in these international bodies to try and alter the international order to to benefit or to try and impact some of these uh, relationships like these, these trading relationships that uh, you were mentioning? Or is China in some ways actually behaving in a respectable fashion within these international organizations? Well, I mean, look, I mean, all countries act in their self-interest. I mean, that's something that uh, that we all know. But I, I absolutely think China is acting in a revisionist sense because, I mean, this is, you know, it's one thing to act in your self-interest in international bodies, but it's another thing to, you know, effectively um, circumvent um, the rules and norms of those international bodies just to suit your purposes. And I think this is what China's uh, doing. I mean, effectively, they've, they've benefited from much of the international um, system, the WTO especially, and their entrance into the WTO. Um, yeah, but there are certain core things that they do not want to budge on. And the idea, they uh, often, of course, mention the 100 years of humiliation from the West. And the last thing that they want uh, is to be dictated uh, from the West. Uh, and what they consider uh, a Western-made uh, international um, order uh, on, on the future of China. So I think this is, a, you know, again, this uh, sort of, uh, you know, choose your dish approach to international relations, um, which doesn't necessarily work. Now, you uh, just mentioned that hundred years of humiliation, and I'm sure many will be familiar with the issue of Taiwan vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. And, you know, that sort of their final piece in what they consider as their revitalization from that hundred years of humiliation. As we see what is happening in Ukraine with Russia's uh, incursions, do you think that this will have any implications for Taiwan or is China maybe feeling a little concerned by Russia's strategy of acknowledging these separatist movements and then making them into these sort of de facto proto-states, uh, does that make China concerned about regions it cares about, like Tibet, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and Taiwan now? Well, uh, on the question of Taiwan, I mean, I, I think there is a, a bit of differences. I mean, I don't think that China has fundamentally changed one iota, its sort of its vision or its strategy for, um, for Taiwan. Um, that being said, I think this has been an eye-opening, um, you know, last couple of weeks for China, as we've talked before about how the international um, community has responded on this. What I will say, though, on Taiwan is um, it may not uh, have changed uh, China's perspective, but I think that it, it potentially has changed the West's perspective as well. Um, and there are a lot of comparisons that are happening now with Ukraine and, and you know, saying Taiwan's coming next. But you know, one thing I, I would say on this point is that 
the, the situation in Ukraine is, is, is horrible, obviously, and uh, it's good to see that the West has, has bound together on this. But I think especially for the Americans, um, the, the situation is fundamentally different. Uh, Taiwan is not a treaty ally, but through the Taiwan Relations Act, uh, there are uh, strong commitments in defense terms. And in addition to that, uh, some of the treaty alliances uh, that the United States has in this region, I think Japan in, in particular, which is only 100 kilometers away from Taiwan, basically this is an extent, existential issue. So the United States would need to make a choice in a Taiwan contingency to basically rescind uh, its uh, regional primacy in the Indo-Pacific and potentially collapse its alliance network um, at the cost of, of non-intervention. I don't, where I sit right now, I don't see the United States making that choice, despite the, the great risks, obviously, of engaging in, in a conflict with China that no one wants. Um, so I think that would be, a, you know, depending on how China sort of estimates um, the possibility of US or Western intervention, I think they need to be very, very careful, um, because this is not a situation that I think can be compared directly to Ukraine. And when we're thinking about some of these security issues, particularly around Taiwan, but perhaps also in the South China Sea with regards to the Indo-Pacific, do you see, um, you, know, you mentioned earlier that the Indo-Pacific is not inherently an anti-China strategy, but when we see this sort of coalescence of the Western powers to confront Russia, and we see you know, AUKUS and the Quad starting to play much more prominent roles uh, in the Indo-Pacific, do you think that's changing how the Indo-Pacific is being viewed or, or what the Indo-Pacific actually is intended uh, to be now? Yeah, I mean, I think this is sort of an outgrowth of decades of, uh, well, one combination of what we've just been talking about, the growth of China in both economic terms and, and military terms, its military modernization. Um, I think the second element is decades of sort of futility might be the, as too strong of a word, but the challenges of the architecture in this region to deal with this. Um, what I often say is that while NATO is having great challenges right now, um, it, it does have NATO. It does have sophisticated architecture that's longstanding uh, and generally united. Um, the Indo-Pacific, frankly, is not the transatlantic. Uh, we do not have that uh, level of architecture. Obviously, we do have multilateral groups uh, like the ASEAN Regional Forum, East Asia Summit, APEC, et cetera. Um, but outs in, in political security terms, really the only thing sort of holding this whole house of cards up is the alliance networks that we've talked about before with the United States. And they're not necessarily networked the way that many had hoped. Uh, so I think this is leading to some of the growth in uh, what, what many people are referring to as minilateral diplomacy. You're starting to see lots of trilaterals, the quad obviously um, between India, the United States, Japan, and Australia uh, is taking form in AUKUS as you mentioned as well. So I think the reason these are, are growing is because of that need, because of that, that sort of lack of, of a community like NATO uh, and with the profound challenges on top uh, that China is posing. So I think that's really the reason that you're having these sort of, um, these sort of groupings uh, rise right now. And do you think it's possible that we might see uh, an Asian version of NATO as some of these frameworks uh, continue to develop, whether minilateral, trilateral, the quad? Could these eventually expand or combine together to form something like an Asian NATO? Or are the differences among Asian countries strong enough that that might not be so feasible? I don't think that this is something in the short term that countries want to see. I mean, even the, if you're going to see a continued grouping of, of minilaterals, as I said, 
um, and ad hoc partnerships. I mean, one of the, the greatest stories or the most interesting stories, um, you know, of the past 10 years, for example, is the growth of the security partnership between the United States and India. Uh, India often sort of, um, you know, looking uh, and, you know, professing itself as a non-aligned state. And I think in many ways it still acts like that, um, but very much it is increasingly choosing sides uh, in the Indo-Pacific and, and, and choosing quite closely with the United States and its allies. Um, that being said, I think, as we mentioned before, the region lives in the region with China. Uh, many of them border China. Many of them rely on uh, trade and supply chains for, with China. So the last thing they want to do is choose. I mean, I think whether you go to countries in Southeast Asia or even in Japan um, or India, they don't want to choose. They don't want to make it um, that much of a bifurcated choice. Uh, so the only thing that I think could change that and propel uh, a multilateral alliance structure like NATO would be, uh, you know, maybe not Ukraine moment is, is the right way to say it, but a significant conflict that I think basically uh, terrified the region into feeling, okay, we have no other choice. Uh, we didn't want to choose, but we've been forced to choose. Um, that at this point, I don't see this being something that the region's thinking about, but again, things can change. And I think the past couple of weeks uh, in Europe have shown just how quickly that can happen. So do you put much uh, stock in some of the uh, suggestions that we might be entering into sort of a Cold War 2.0 with an axis with China and Russia? I know they're not formally aligned, but the two certainly do seem to benefit from their uh, sort of respective assaults on the international order, if, if you want to put it that way. Um, is that the kind of direction you see us heading right now, or is that an overly simplistic way of describing the situation? Yeah, I think it's maybe slightly simplistic, only in the sense, and I think you touched on this in your question too, is that is some of the differences between Russia and China. Uh, if this was really an ultimate block, an ultimate alliance that was fully on the same page, um, had very similar interests globally, um, maybe there could be more concern. Uh, but I think there is a, quite a quite a difference there uh, in in some of the ambitions and the way that they approach this. You know, I think the biggest thing um, is, as we've talked before, China wants to be a part of the international community in many ways. It just wants to choose which parts it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a member of. And if it doesn't like it, it's gonna discard it. I think in many ways, I don't wanna say Russia doesn't wanna be any part of the international community, but I think it's okay. It's accepted its pariah status uh, um, several different periods over the past 10 to 15 years. I don't think it's concerned as much about the international image going forward. So that I think, you know, again, provides opportunities, uh, but whether China decides to seize that sort of moment um, is, is something else to be said. And, and as for Russia, I mean, I think a lot of it depends on the leadership, frankly. I mean, um, as long as Putin's in office, I don't see much hope uh, that that sort of, uh, that mindset will change. I think those are really good points. And I sort of like this distinction with, with a China that is a somewhat revisionist power, but ultimately is looking for a stable, international system and more of that shopping cart kind of mentality, whereas Russia seems a little more on a path to being a disruptor uh, and creating chaos to try and get its what it wants. And I want to hop back just a moment to the, the point you made about Asian countries not wanting to choose. And where does that sort of fit in with, with Canada as, as we look to the Indo-Pacific? We're obviously you know, we have the largest land border with the United States, uh, huge trade partners. Um, do, do we have this ability to, or the luxury to not choose at the moment? 
Uh, and to what extent are, are we really involved in, in the Indo-Pacific or why should we be prioritizing the Indo-Pacific right now? Yeah, well, you know, when it comes to the choosing perspective, again, I think Canada would be in the same boat. We, you know, we don't want to make a 100% choice uh, yeah, one way or the other. But the reality is, uh, while you may not want to choose, it's not the idea that the dinners are equal either. Um, so perhaps if you're sitting from, you know, in Singapore, uh, or if you're sitting in Seoul, uh, it's a very different discussion than it would be in Ottawa. And one thing I often mention and, and try to debunk is this idea that Canada is in the middle uh, between two great superpowers, um, uh, the United States and China, and there are two different options we can take. I mean, I, I think that's just nonsense in many ways. The reality is you just need to look at a map. Um, we have one border, it's the United States. Again, a, a friend and a neighbor that we don't always agree with. We've, we have our uh, challenges over, over the period of history, including recently. Um, but fundamentally, our prosperity and our security is intertwined with the United States, uh, in addition to some of our cultural and, and societal links. Um, so the idea that it's a sort of an equal choice um, between the United States and China, I think, at the onset, um, is not really a, a fair sort of starting point. Um, as it relates to the Indo-Pacific, I think, you know, why it's so important for Canada is a lot of it goes into that question. Um, if conflict continues between the United States and China, if it spills over, whether it's a Taiwan contingency, whether it's something uh, between Japan and China, whether it's something in the South China Sea or elsewhere, um, fundamentally we're involved. The idea that this is sort of one of these opt-in conflicts uh, that we say, well, no, I mean, good luck United States, so we'll, we'll stand behind and support you rhetorically. It just doesn't make sense. So whether we want it or not, um, uh, we're going to be involved in this part of the world if it gets to conflict. Uh, similarly, economically, um, most of the economic growth and stakes are happening in this region. So for us to sort of sit this out or, or find ways to sort of, uh, you know, uh, dabble our toes is not going to be sufficient else as well. The third point, I think, is that for too long, uh, the way that we've thought about this region um, effectively is uh, one in investment and trade terms. And when we thought in investment and trade terms, you know, maybe this is simplifying, but really we were attracted to the Chinese economy. So the way that for, for many years we looked at, at Asia was uh, we can get wealthy with trading with these uh, new burgeoning economies and China being number one. Um, the problem with that sort of thinking, and, and Canada wasn't the only one guilty of this, I think some of our European friends and uh, Australia and others were guilty as well, um, is that it sort of downplayed some of the structural security um, and political issues that have been there for a long time. You know, as we talked before, this, this idea of nudging China, the idea that, well, if we keep engaging them economically, if we all get wealthy, you know, eventually the political shoe will drop, reform will happen. And we've seen uh, not only did that not happen, but it actually uh, has grown more and more authoritarian uh, under Xi Jinping. So I think all of these factors necessitate a robust strategy. I think the challenge will be, and we're seeing it play out right now in Ukraine, is that we have many partnerships, many friendships, many equities around the world. So a question I often get asked is, you know, do we have space for the Indo-Pacific? You know, we're, we're a NATO ally, um, you know, we're, we're a country in the Americas. We obviously have commitment in the Americas as well, uh, in Africa, et cetera. How do we carve out the space in the Indo-Pacific? Where are the resources? 
uh, and where's our niche? Um, and I think that's that's one of the important things in the strategy process that's going on right now is finding that exactly. Um, I think it's a, it's a question we have to answer. I think we have to be there, uh, but I think it's a fair question. I think we need to find, we can't be uh, everything in this region. We're not gonna be the same as the United States. We're not gonna be the same as Australia or Japan, but we will uh, find a defined niche role. Uh, and that's something that I think is a real imperative right now. Now you've, you've laid out quite a variety of avenues through which Canada might uh, engage in the region. Obviously we're much more towards the economic and trade and investment side of this, uh, but moving forward, do you think that is a, a position that Canada can continue to maintain or is Canada going to have to start um, you know, engaging more in the security dimensions of the Indo-Pacific as well? And you know, what kind of role might Canada play there. We've seen other middle powers like Australia and South Korea come up with some very different uh, approaches to how they're going to do that. You know, are these potential role models for for Canada, uh, or are we going to be charting a more unique path uh, of our own? That's a really good question. I mean, you know, the first point, which seems like a sort of a an obvious one for Asia, but often gets forgotten, is to show up. Um, the, the more often you show up, whether it's to, um, you know, foreign meetings, we talked before with ASEAN, you know, not the most perfect forum, um, but making sure you show up uh, often um, and as many times as you can and, and many of the different subfora, I think is important. The second thing is on security issues and defense issues, we actually have been doing some, some pretty uh, interesting stuff recently, whether it's um, our, uh, our role in Operation Neon, ensuring that North Korea can't circumvent uh, uh, United Nations uh, Security Council sanctions over its ballistic missile and WMD program, uh, whether it's some of the, the growth, for example, in some of the relationships with Japan, some of the defense agreements that we're, we're doing with them, uh, some of the, uh, the submarine deployments in the region, the port calls, et cetera. So we are doing some interesting stuff. Uh, one of the, and we'll have to do more, but one of the challenges is having a strategy behind that that can explain what this is. So right now, I think to the region, they see a lot of tactical pieces. They see, you know, Canada here, Canada there, but they don't really see some strategic rationale for why this is happening. So I think that sometimes can be just as important. And I think that leads me to the way that we communicate this, um, you know, often going back to the resources question, um, people say, well, the, you know, the Canadian Navy only has so many assets, you know, it can't be, it can't be everywhere like uh, the Australians or the Japanese or the Americans. Uh, my answer would be, it, it, you know, not everything needs to rest on the shoulders of the Canadian Navy as great as they are. Um, strong principled diplomacy, uh, development assistance. Uh, I mean, there are many tools in your toolkits, um, even when talking about security. Uh, so a principled, very quick, timely statement can be just as effective uh, as a port visit. Uh, so understanding that or prioritize development assistance uh, to some partners in the region. So understanding how all of these dimensions um, work together, I think is important. And the last thing I think um, is, and it's very difficult for I think, the Canadian side because traditionally the way ingrained in our sort of DNA or our blueprint and, and the way we see ourselves conducting foreign policy is multilateralism. Um, and again, not to take away from the importance of that, but as we've talked before, the Indo-Pacific is a different beast. Um, you know, there are multilateral uh, organizations, but they're not the most effective 
uh, at dealing with some of these challenges. Um, I often term them as, as necessary, but probably insufficient to dealing with some of these challenges. So we need to get out of our comfort zone as Canada in the way we engage, not just the things we engage on, but the way we do it. Uh, we have to be comfortable, frankly, for, um, for joining some of these minilateral groups uh, in addition to the multilaterals. Um, and I think that's something that's a new way of approach for Canada because I think we're, we're inherently sort of a little risk averse to that we, you know, we do the bilateral engagements and we do the multilateral engagements, but the idea of sort of these coalitions uh, in the region, it's something that we haven't really done the best at. We hadn't, we haven't needed to do it uh, in Europe, for example, but I think we will need to do it in the Indo-Pacific. Lots of great points to uh, unpack there. And unfortunately, we are running towards the end of, uh, of our time, but maybe in the last couple minutes, um, uh, I could ask you a little bit on this front. You, know, you mentioned that Canada sort of has to change up its strategy and how it engages with the Indo-Pacific. Is this something that Canada is, is ready to do at this point, or is this something that's going to require uh, you know, a lot of work and deeper introspection to figure out how to uh, properly engage in this very different kind of, of environment and how likely are our interests to align with those of the United States towards the Indo-Pacific as we're thinking about some of these minilateral and, and coalition-like engagements? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that we, um, you know, we we do have the experience uh, to to do this very quickly. I mean, we've um, uh, the process of developing this strategy has been going on officially for two years, um, but the thought process on having a stronger strategy for Asia has been sort of longstanding. Um, and the frankly, we there is some urgency here. Um, you know, if you look in the G7 context, uh, obviously the Americans we've talked about before um, have had several kicks of the can of this uh, from the uh, Obama administration, the Trump administration, now the Biden administration, which has just released its, its most recent Indo-Pacific strategy. The Japanese, as we've referred to, uh, the, the sort of intellectual architects of the, the Indo-Pacific um, have had a few kicks of the can of their vision of this, the Aussies. Um, the European Union uh, has a, its own Indo-Pacific strategy, including member states such as uh, Germany, uh, France, the Netherlands, the UK has its own uh, vision, even ASEAN, um, which has its, uh, you know, the biggest reason to hedge in this region has an Indo-Pacific strategy. So time is not necessarily on our side. Um, that being said, um, I think that the, the positive thing about being a little bit later to the game is that you can sort of yeah, take some uh, crib, crib notes in a way and sort of make a mosaic uh, of the best parts of others Indo-Pacific strategy. So as it relates to the Americans, I don't think our strategy will mirror the Americans, but it need not be a sort of a counter American view or, you know, how do we get away from the American view and do something completely different? I think the reality, as we talked before, is that we're going to share a lot of things with the Americans on this. Um, a lot of the, the, the main pillars that we care about in this region align very closely with the Americans. That being said, um, does it make sense for us to have uh, as security first uh, sort of strategy or something that prioritizes that? Probably not. Um, and I think some of our greatest successes so far, uh, including uh, being the second biggest economy in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, show that the economy side is one element. But there needs to be that sort of that equilibrium and that balance with security issues too. So the capacity is there. Um, but I think my, my sort of last point on this is that we need to resist the temptation to think of this in a 
in a task force mentality or the idea that um, you, you know check done um, Indo Pacific project is, is is complete. You know we got a strategy and maybe someone will read it uh, this year, but we'll forget about it next year. This is a long-term strategic lens. And this is something I, you know, when I provide advice on this issue, I often mention is that we're in for the long haul on this. This is not uh, a five-year effort or, you know, how do we do, how do we deal with this region? And then we'll move on to, you know, something else in five, 10 years. I mean, this is really going to be the next uh, 10, 20, 100 years uh, of foreign policy strategy. So we need to get it right. Taking time is not, a, is not necessarily a bad thing, but we need to understand and be committed uh, to sustaining this uh, for the long haul. Well, thanks so much. That certainly gives us a lot to uh, think about and look forward to as Canada continues to deepen its engagement in the region. And uh, I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Once again, for our listeners, uh, our guest today was Jonathan Berkshire Miller. And uh, thank you very much again for joining us. Of course, it was a great pleasure.